0: again and welcome to another edition of this week in labor i am your host tim biladew and we got a lot to cover this week so let's jump right into our first story our first story is coming to us from in times.com and is written by moshe z marvit the title is trump's supreme court pick could spell a fresh hell for workers rights on monday president donald trump announced his nomination of conservative brett kavanaugh to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court. If Kavanaugh is confirmed, Chief Justice John Roberts, a fellow conservative, will become the ideological and political center of the Supreme Court, and protections for women, minorities, voting rights, civil liberties, and more could come under threat. Workers and labor unions should be particularly concerned about Judge Kavanaugh's history of siding with businesses against workers and for pushing a deregulatory agenda. In his 13 years on the court, Chief Justice Roberts has helped to unleash unlimited corporate money into politics, open the door to mass voter disenfranchisement, and lay the groundwork to strengthen the power of corporations over consumers and employees. He has also, in the words of Justice Illina Kagan, led the conservative project of, quote, weaponizing the First Amendment in a way that unleashes judges now and in the future to intervene in economic and regulatory policy. This is who will now be the swing vote on the Supreme Court if Kavanaugh is confirmed. Kavanaugh, who is 53 years old, once clerked, for Judge Alec Kaczynski, who abruptly retired last year after a long history of sexual harassment was revealed. Previously, Kavanaugh worked with Kenneth Starr to investigate President Bill Clinton and draft the report that led to Clinton's impeachment. Over his last 12 years on the D.C. District Court of Appeals, Kavanaugh has shown himself to be an extraordinarily conservative judge. An analysis by Axios determined that Kavanaugh is just slightly less conservative than the most conservative member of the court, Clarence Thomas. A review of Judge Kavanaugh decisions regarding workers' rights shows a disturbing trend of siding with employers on a range of issues. In Southern New England Telephone Company v. NLRB 2015, Kavanaugh overruled the NLRB's decision that the employer committed an unfair labor practice when it barred workers from wearing t-shirts that said inmate on the front and prisoner of AT&T on the back. Under the law, employees are permitted to wear union apparel to work and the NLRB found that these shirts were protected under the National Labor Relations Act. The board rejected the argument that special circumstances warranted limiting workers' rights because no reasonable person would conclude that the worker was a prison convict. Kavanaugh rejected the board's legal analysis, writing, Common sense sometimes matters in resolving legal disputes. No company, at least one that is interested in keeping its customers, presumably wants its employees walking into people's homes wearing shirts that say inmate and prisoner. Kavanaugh was undoubtedly correct in his understanding of the company's desire not to have workers wear such shirts, which is precisely why the workers did so. What the unions did in wearing the shirts was apply pressure in a labor dispute in a manner that the law has long allowed. However, Kavanaugh criticized the board's analysis, writing that the appropriate test for special circumstances is not whether at and customers would confuse the inmate-slash-prisoner's shirt with actual prison garb, but whether at and could reasonably believe that the message may harm its relationship with its customers or its public image. By shifting the focus to the employer's public image, Kavanaugh undercut the right of workers to publicly protest and dissent. In Verizon New England Incorporated v. NLRB 2016, Kavanaugh overturned the NLRB's ruling that workers could display pro-union signs in their cars parked in the company parking lot after the union waived its members' right to picket. In his decision, Kavanaugh held that no hard and fast definition of the term picketing excludes the visible display of pro-union signs in employees' cars rather than that in employees' hands, especially when the cars are lined up in the employer's parking lot and thus visible to passers-by in the same way as a picket line. Therefore, according to Kavanaugh, the union's waiver of the right to picket also applied to signs left on cars. Judge Kavanaugh again overruled a pro-worker NLRB decision in Venetian Casino Resort LLC vs. NLRB 2015. The NLRB had determined that the casino committed an unfair labor practice when, in response to a peaceful demonstration by employees for which they had a permit, the casino called the police on the workers. Citing the First Amendment, Kavanaugh held that, when a person petitions the government in good faith, the First Amendment prohibits any sanction on that action. Calling the police to enforce state trespassing laws, Kavanaugh concluded deserves such protection. In UFCW AFL-CIO 540 versus NLRB in 2014, Judge Kavanaugh issued an anti-worker decision involving Walmart's meat wars. After 10 meat cutters in Jacksonville, Texas, voted to form the first union at Walmart. The company closed its meat operations in 180 stores and switched to prepackaged meats. The notoriously anti-union Walmart denied that its decision had anything to do with the union vote. After the switch, Walmart refused to bargain with the meat cutters, arguing that they no longer constituted an appropriate bargaining unit. Judge Kavanaugh agreed with Walmart's argument, but did write that Walmart must bargain with the union over the effect of the conversion of the employees. Judge Kavanaugh has consistently sided with employers in labor law cases to the detriment of workers' labor rights. He also has argued that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, established in 2011, is unconstitutional, and Aaron Klein, director of the Center on Regulation and Markets at the Brookings Institution, has said that his nomination could reverse over a century of American financial regulation. Labor advocates should be extremely concerned about this ideological bent if Kavanaugh becomes a justice on an already very business-friendly and conservative Supreme Court. (laughs) Our next story comes to us from Bloomberg.com and is written by Joss Edelson and Ben Barodi. The title of this article is Top Communications Union joins group pushing for Facebook's breakup. The top U.S. communications union is joining a coalition calling for the Federal Trade Commission to break up Facebook Incorporated as the social media company faces growing government scrutiny and public pressure. We should all be deeply concerned by Facebook's power over our lives and democracy, said Brian Thorne, a researcher for the 700,000 member Communication Workers of America, the newest member of the Freedom from Facebook coalition. For the FTC not to end Facebook's monopoly and impose stronger rules on privacy would be unfair to the American people, our privacy and our democracy, Thorne said in an email. Facebook disclosed July 2nd that it's cooperating with probes by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Bureau of Investigation on how political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica obtained personal information on as many as 87 million of the site's users without their consent. The FTC, the Department of Justice and some state regulators were already probing the matter, which prompted Facebook Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg to testify before Congress in April. Facebook also faces calls for regulation from many lawmakers and the public over the privacy issue. Russian efforts to manipulate the 2016 presidential election and the spread of false information on the platform. Facebook declined to comment on the union's move. The CWA doesn't represent Facebook employees, but it does represent more than one 100,000 workers at AT&T Incorporated, which has clashed with Facebook on public policy before. And although Facebook's workers don't belong to unions, the contracted shuttle drivers and cafeteria workers are unionized. CWA's members believe the union should be a powerful voice in the debate over privacy and monopoly at Facebook, given its expertise in telecommunications and knowledge of how to influence the regulatory process. Beth Allen, the union's communications director, said in an interview, There is a lot of public pressure around this issue, Alan said. We hope to increase that public pressure around it, and I'm fairly optimistic that there is an appetite for making some progress there. Facebook is a whole new kind of entity that I think regulators are struggling to keep up with, Alan said, citing its wide-ranging businesses, including its separate messaging app, Instagram photo-sharing service, and internet service abroad. The company has said it faces stiff competition, particularly from other communication apps, and points out that its main social network with more than two Billion users worldwide is free and popular. Sarah Miller, Freedom from Facebook's director, said the addition of the union showed the group of privacy and anti monopoly activists in gaining momentum. It's a really important signal that we're having more and more groups become interested in this set of solutions, she said. CWA will help develop the coalition's evolving strategy, Miller added. The union joins groups including Move On and Open Markets Institute in Freedom from Facebook. The anti Facebook coalition plans to urge members to participate in upcoming public hearings of the FTC, Miller said. The agency's chairman, Joe Simons, has had the question of whether tech giants such as Facebook, Amazon Incorporated, and Alphabet Incorporated, Google, are undermining competition will be a priority of the hearings. Our final story this week comes to us from the New York Times, and it is written by Susan Dynarski, and the title is Fresh proof that strong unions help reduce income inequality. New evidence shows that unions played a major role in reducing income inequality in the United States in the decades when organized labor was strong. But it also demonstrates that the decline in union power since the 1960s, which may be exacerbated as a result of a recent Supreme Court decision, has contributed to the widening gap between rich and poor. The new insights come from a working paper, Unions and Inequality Over the 20th Century. New evidence from survey data by four economists, Henry Farber, Daniel Herbst, and Ilyana Kuzyemko of Princeton and Shuresh Naidu of Columbia. They established that unions have constrained income inequality far beyond their own membership ranks. While the scholars can't pinpoint the precise mechanism at work, they speculate that unions have indirectly increased pay at firms nervous that their own employees might organize. Unions have also lobbied for higher minimum wages and pushed to hold down executive salaries. They have also advocated for broader access to healthcare, countering a key channel through which income inequality can harm all of society. The findings are particularly relevant in light of the Supreme Court's June 27th decision in the case Janus v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The court ruled that states can no longer require public employees who are represented by a union, but have chosen not to formally become members to contribute to the cost of collective bargaining. That will certainly hurt unions financially, and it may lessen their already diminished power. Income inequality Began its steep rise in the 1970s. Economists have been arguing about the origins of this trend since, with the primary explanations falling into two camps. The dominant narrative described in The Race Between Education and Technology by Professors Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz of Harvard is that scientific progress has given the most educated workers the upper hand through skill biased technological change. The theory goes that companies have bid up wages for workers who are best able to adopt new technologies, while demand for for other workers has stagnated. This narrative is bolstered by rising levels of earnings for college-educated workers. But another explanation for increasing income inequality centers on the erosion of the minimum wage and the decline of unions. Economists in this camp emphasize changing norms, institutions, and politics, not just market forces, as important drivers of the widening gulf between rich and poor. The debate has real-world consequences. If market forces are primarily responsible for the growing inequality, then the best we can do, from an economic standpoint is to try to buffer their negative effects on low-skilled workers through post-market policies, like taxes and social welfare programs. But if institutions matter more, then we can reduce inequality with market-oriented policies that, for example, bolster the minimum wage or ease the formation of unions. Until now, the study of unions' effect on inequality has essentially started with the 1970s, because good data has been hard to come by for any time before then. But it was hard to tell a complete story about how the rise and fall of unions affected economic inequality because the data is confined to a time during which unions were already in decline. In the new study, the four scholars have mined newly available Gallup Organization data going back to the 1930s, based on surveys of American households that include questions about political beliefs as well as union membership, education, and income. The rich trove of these older surveys is now publicly available at the Roper Center at Cornell University. The four economists painstakingly cleaned and encoded hundreds of these surveys spanning nearly 90 years. The data encompass the growth of unions during the 1930s and 40s, their heyday in the 50s and 60s, and their slow decline to the present. Union workers now earn about 20% more than non-union workers in similar jobs. Remarkably, this union premium has held steady since the 1930s. Throughout this period, the biggest boost from union membership has gone to the least educated workers who have, in turn, driven the rise and fall of union membership. The decades following World War II when unskilled workers formed the union movement's backbone marked the most rapid decreases in income inequality. Wages for non-white workers were particularly strong then, but increasing wages for low-skilled union members is just one channel through which unions can reduce income inequality. Unions can also affect the earnings of non-union workers. To capture such effects, the researchers broadened their lens to include the entire distribution of workers and their wages beyond those who are in typical unionized jobs and industries. They found that, going back to the 1930s, more unions meant more income equality. During years and in states where workers were more likely to be unionized, income inequality was lower. I will admit freely that I'm predisposed towards unions. I've seen their effects in my own life. My father was a high school dropout, but as a unionized mechanic at the United States Postal Service, he earned a solid wage. His union paycheck, along with my mother's low-paid, non-union job, financed a house, a car, and Catholic school educations for three daughters. Before I trained as an economist, I spent six years as an organizer forming unions among secretaries, library workers, and lab assistants at Harvard and the University of Minnesota. I saw firsthand the increased economic security that unionization brought these predominantly female workers in the form of higher wages, more generous pensions, and paid maternity leave. Thanks to the new research, evidence going back nearly a century now shows that unions have formed a critical counterweight to the power of companies they increase the earnings of the lowest skilled and sharply reduce inequality. But the Supreme Court's decision will curtail the capacity of unions to organize and represent workers. The court ruled that unions can no longer collect agency fees from those government workers whom they represent but who have chosen not to join. These fees have helped pay for contract negotiations as well as prevent the free rider problem that arises when only some pay for benefits enjoyed by everyone. Incomes in the United States are now as unequal as they were in the 1920s. The gulf between rich and poor will widen if, as I fear, unions are weakened further. And that does it once again for another edition of This Week in Labor. I am your host, Tim Billidoo. Join us again next week when we discuss more issues from the front lines of the labor movement. Until then, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button and follow along. Until next week, in solidarity, this has been This Week in Labor. (laughs)
1: Join that one big union You've got to join it by yourself Everybody here will join it with you You've got to join the one big union by yourself If the road gets rough and rocky And the hills get steep and high We will sing as we go marching And we'll win one big union by and by. Brother's got to join that one big union. Brother's got to join it by himself. Everybody here will join it with him. Brother's got to join the one big union by himself. Sister's gotta join that one big union. Sister's gotta join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with her. Sister's gotta join the one big union by herself. Everybody gotta join that one big union. Everybody gotta join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with them. Yes. Sir. Everybody join the one big union by themselves. I'm gonna join that one big union I'm gonna join it by myself Don't want nobody to join it for me I'm gonna join the one big union by myself I'm gonna join that one big union, yes I am I'm gonna join it by myself no one, nobody to join it for me. I'm going to join the one big union by myself.